0: Thank you for tuning in to the Historic Restorations podcast. Please take a moment to visit our website, historic-restorations.com, for additional information and tips to help you restore your historic home. If you've not yet done so, please subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. And also like us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash historic restorations. Welcome to the Historic Restorations podcast, hosted by Danielle Kepperling. Historic Restorations is a family-owned business based in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, dedicated to the preservation of our built architectural history for today's use, as well as future generations. Our weekly podcast provides you with expert advice specific to the unique needs of renovating a historic home. Educating by sharing our From the Trenches preservation knowledge and our guests' expertise balancing modern needs while maintaining the historical significance, character, and beauty of your period home.
1: Thank you uh, for coming in um, to the Historic Restorations Podcast. Um, We're actually doing this interview in person, and today uh, we have Chad Martin with us, the director of the National Fund for Sacred Places. Um, Prior to his role at Partners, Chad was the pastor at Community Mennonite Church of Lancaster, uh, Pennsylvania. During his pastoral tenure, the congregation developed an in-house art gallery, redeveloped an award-winning parking lot in accordance with the city's green infrastructure plan, and substantially increased building use by community partners. Prior to this, Chad was the ceramic studio coordinator at the Manchester Craftsman's Guild in Pittsburgh. He served on several boards of directors in Pittsburgh and Lancaster, including as a founding board member of the Union Project, an example of best practice for adaptive reuse in the historic religious property. As an assistant moderator of the Atlantic Coast Conference MCUSA, he has written articles on art and/or theology and spirituality, for several publications, including Ceramics Monthly, Worship, and Conrad Grebel Review. He is ordained for pastoral ministry in the Mennonite Church USA. Uh, Chad is a graduate of Goshen College, Pittsburgh Theological Seminary, and Leadership Lancaster. Chad, thank you for joining us for the Historic Restorations podcast.
2: Absolutely, it's a delight to to be with you.
1: Um, Thank you. Um, Again, how did you um, get started in preservation? I know you kind of came about it in a roundabout way. Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. So as I was saying, kind of coming into this, I do not come at this work from a preservation background. Um, Although I should say I can maybe start that by saying what we do with the National Fund and Partners for Sacred Places. Um, So Partners for Sacred Places was uh, formed as a nonprofit. We're a national nonprofit organization based in Philadelphia, uh, formed in the late 1980s, so almost 30 years ago. And at that time in the preservation world, there was this kind of brewing, um, there's kind of a brewing conflict and definitely a kind of robust conversation going on in urban centers like New York, Boston, Chicago, um, where there was kind of this tension between communities of faith, uh, congregations and parishes, and the preservation community. Um, it was kind of the first time in this country where you saw development pressures um, for property, uh, kind of wooing congregations to consider selling their buildings or selling air rights or those kinds of dynamics for the um, we, for the real estate for, for real estate yeah. development, um, which which and congregations that may have been struggling, saw this as kind of an opportunity to endow their programs, you know, for years into the future by selling valuable property, which was, of course, in direct tension with historic preservationists in those very same communities saying, even as development pressures increase, we want to be... um, preserving buildings that matter to the community. Right. And that have have
1: stood there for how long and so much part of the community's history. Well, exactly. So in
2: places like New York and Boston, churches that have been there for 300 years or more Mm -hmm. in some cases. Right. Um, So kind of out of that tension and, you know, like a lot of kind of urban development things, New York was kind of leading the way with some of these conversations. Out of that, Partners was formed as a nonprofit that tried to bridge that gap and some of that tension between the preservation community and the interests of congregations. Right. Um, so that's a kind of long backstory to say that's that's kind of the backdrop of the work we do at Partners. So over the years, we have uh, had a vested interest in how preservation can enable congregations and parishes to kind of follow their mission of serving their communities rather than seeing, you know, losing their buildings or selling buildings as as a way to, to To continue, to continue their
1: mission. Yeah. Yeah. Do you work with, I know that's another thing that happens, and I don't know if this is something that you directly work with, but the the churches that get closed in those communities, do you work with those buildings
2: then to find a
1: suitable Mm -hmm. reuse? Yeah,
2: absolutely. Absolutely. So the program I direct is the National Fund, which is a new um, grant-making program uh, funded by the Lilly Endowment, uh, in order to make large capital grants with congregations that are thriving but have preservation needs okay. in their buildings. Okay. So you're
1: um, you're more that that other end of the spectrum where yeah. there's people still attending there, they exactly. but they just don't have the money to to upkeep necessarily exactly. that building.
2: And and there, you know, there's a wide range of capacity in there, mm-hmm. but you know virtually every uh, leader of a historic re- congregation will tell you, you know, no matter how well endowed they are, there's always a need for more. Right. Preservation of buildings is expensive. And often for churches falls kind of to the bottom of the list. You know, if they're choosing between uh, giving money to programs that, you know, take care of basic human needs like food, clothing, right. shelter, if they're choosing between that and repairing the stained glass windows, usually they're going to Do the program stuff and hope that someday they get to the windows.
1: Yeah, I know. I one thing that really kind of opened my eyes to the role of churches in preservation and promoting arts and all of that was I St. James just underwent a big restoration project where they they worked on safety. I I went through a presentation where they talked about all the different things that they did to make it uh, for future use, but also respecting the historic. And one of the things that um, Father David said was that churches, because we, we, I went on a field trip where they were making the clay tiles by hand still at the Mercer Tile Works, and he said churches have always promoted that kind of work, and it was he felt like it was his duty to be a patron and and keep that that skill and that craft going. And I thought that's really the type of work we do too, and it made me. it it opened my eyes to the role of the church. And then I thought back of my history, you know, of the Renaissance and all those painters and all of that, that whole thing, it kind of tied it together in my mind.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. So historically churches have been, you know, literally kind of the temples at the center of civic life. The story of the 20th century, and now into the 21st century, as you kind of alluded to, is that uh, you know, church participation has been declining. Um, the kind of role of the Christian church, at least, in civic life is very different than it was 100 right. years ago or 200 years ago. And yet we still have these kind of vestiges to that era mm-hmm. in, in the kind of physical buildings. You know. So, So our work is really to step into that gap and say how, you know, even as the religious landscape of the country changes, how can we continue to preserve these facilities as a community resource? Right. And usually now it takes more than just the members of the congregation to make that happen. And it takes really a whole community saying this is a resource that matters. To and us. it's important. Yeah. Yes. Which really, you know, I'm sure puts it in line with many other preservation efforts I oh, mean, yeah. no no preservation effort happens without a broad right coalition yeah
1: and there's support. and there's often a, a discussion too of the economic impact of preservation and and i know reading prepping for this at reading the economic you even have things on on the website talking about the economic impact of churches and communities yeah. and i had never thought about that but that really is you know that really yeah. is something that is is valuable and should be highlighted so that people aren't just saying, Oh, that's a building that doesn't pay taxes. It's, you know, all of, all of those things that go into those community discussions.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And you're, you're kind of hitting at the heart of a a piece that has been really important to partners, Um, you know, very quickly in, in its early days at partners in the late eighties, early nineties, these conversations started emerging about, well, why, why should we save these buildings, which, which pushes, pushed our staff back to articulating a narrative about why these places matter. And, you know, when you're talking about, yeah, things like tax, a tax base and increasing revenue for a city, um, cash-strapped cities looking for revenue wherever they can, you know, that quickly turned to an economic conversation. So church folks aren't really used to speaking in economic terms about the value of what they do, but I think that's one of the really important contributions our organization has made over the years. So going back to the kind of mid-90s, late-90s, our organization helped sponsor a major research project looking at the economic value of what churches provide I say churches, but really communities of faith right. of any religious tradition. So their community, um, not really aside from everything they do that is the focus of their worship or religious life. Looking at the economic impact of employing people in a community, kind of the the effects of providing services that are often kind of appreciated by the community, but under the radar in terms of a dollar amount. Right. Of like, what's the true value of this? And then we did a major update to that research just in the last couple of years. And we've kind of dubbed that the economic halo effect, Mm -hmm. meaning, you know, it kind of radiates out. It's not just what happens in the doors of the church. In some cases, you know, I uh, just a couple months ago visited one of our awardees, which is a Catholic basilica in Milwaukee. It's an amazing, amazing facility. It actually um, this is not very typical for uh, religious buildings it was like the mm-hmm. most visited tourist site in milwaukee oh, really? uh, like the highest yeah. rated by yeah. TripAdvisor for a That's couple funny. years yeah um, so they're they're definitely a major asset to that community mm-hmm. and we did a we did a halo study of the economic impact of the basilica in their community yeah. so one of the things we're looking at is you know how many people you know they're like a destination wedding event Because it's such a grand space. So people will come from out of town to have a wedding there. What's the economic impact of all the guests who come and spend a night there, buy meals there? Right. Um, Everything that goes into the
1: wedding. Yeah.
2: All the baptisms that happen there, the extended family that come in, Mm -hmm. maybe from the broader region, maybe from even hours away. So we, you know, and, and we've worked to have conservative estimates of that so that we're not, you know, just. So this isn't guesswork but right. but honestly saying you know what what's what's the economic kind of activity going on around that place and in their case it was in the millions of dollars annually that that kind of ripple out from what they do as a basilica that's right. not about the dollar spent on a baptism or the dollar spent on a wedding right. or a worship service, but it's all the dollars spent. The people
1: the employed and the, yeah. all the, all the things that go into yeah. making those celebrations. Yeah.
2: Um, yeah. So that's become an important part of our work to help congregations tell their story well about why they matter to a broader community. Right. And in you know, and in some cases, in some of the cases where churches close, frankly, they don't matter a lot. They haven't figured out how to transcend all the changes around them to stay relevant to that community. And we try to be honest with communities when they're in that place too. But there are many historic congregations that continue to serve their communities in meaningful ways um, that are often kind of under the radar and not kind of seen by the broader community as fully as they could be.
1: It's very interesting to me, the, the, to look at it because that's oftentimes the way that they look at restoration because restoration is so much more labor intensive than new construction because you're, you're going in and you're repairing things rather than buying new materials. So you're not just installing things and looking at it through that lens, I can definitely see how a church, I had never looked at it that way, but how a church does impact the community and all the people around it. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Oh. Absolutely. And even even if folks aren't always fully aware of what happens inside the doors of a religious space, um, they become symbols to the community. <laughs> so if they're lost to a community, you know, what's the, how do you quantify what the loss is? And that, right. you know, that transcends churches. That's a historic preservation. Oh yeah.
1: And, and that landmark building.
2: Yeah, yeah. What happens when we lose these landmark buildings? Yeah. And of course, you know, we can't save all of them. No. The the preservation community is like well aware right. that we can't save all of them.
1: But there are some that are worth, worth yeah. definitely definitely saving and, and preserving so that yeah.
2: we have them into the future. I, if I could, I wanted to circle back to your question about kind of how we work oh, sure, with churches sure, that, that are not thriving and mm-hmm. what happens with those buildings. Because that is really one of the emerging kind of questions for an organization like mm-hmm. ours, you know, in the kind of changing religious landscape we live in right now. You know, increasingly, I think this is probably in every community across the country. It's definitively in every urban community across the country. There are grand historic church buildings that are um, in disrepair or facing challenges because either the congregation is dwindling and dying and ends right. up closing its doors. Maybe a church kind of sees the writing on the wall and they sell the building and another congregation steps in. Move, yeah. um, in some cases, uh, and these in some ways are some of the real fun success stories of the work, in some cases, there's no no longer a viable congregation that makes sense for a property, but it is still seen as a community asset mm-hmm. Uh, and so the community rallies to say, "How can oh, we yeah. kind of take ownership of this? Um, that That's really what uh, I was a part of with the Union project in Pittsburgh. Okay. ten, fifteen years ago. So was
1: the building did was it a, then what did you transform it into or how did yeah, you reuse yeah.
2: it? So that's a great kind of adaptive reuse story. Mm-hmm. That was a that was a kind of crumbling church building. The actual bricks and mortar stories of like hauling trash. Oh <laughs> yeah, that could be a whole <laughs> that could be a whole podcast itself. Just the horror stories of bringing back to life a building that's been neglected for right. decades. Um, numbers of dead pigeons and things oh, yeah. like that. Oh yeah, I've been there. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you have. Probably everyone interested in this kind of conversation has been there. Um, so, well, first of all, the group who bought it was kind of just a group of community members who came together and had a vision for like we literally. Walked by this church building every day to get to the bus stop and go to right. work. It was it was a symbol of our community, and yet it was just falling apart in front of our and eyes.
1: And not even it was was it not being used? It yeah, was, I mean yeah. there was a
2: there was technically a congregation of like five people meeting around a space heater in a back room. Right, but they had clearly become overwhelmed years ago, and it just was in total disrepair. Um, so, it, you know, this was years of sweat equity, but we built a nonprofit organization that was a kind of non-sectarian, mm-hmm. non-faith based nonprofit organization, although many of us came from kind of a perspective of communities of faith being important to our right. formation, came together to form a nonprofit organization and cast a vision of really developing it as a kind of multi-purpose community center um, at the time, their their vision. They still exist as an organization, and they still, you know, have been taking good care of that building. Yeah. Um, the the uses have kind of shifted a little bit over time as they've lived into their own vision, and, and the founders kind of stepped away. The original vision was around kind of arts, community, and faith. Okay. Um, So early on, we did actually find a congregation that was looking for a home that was brought in as a tenant, and they're still there, Yeah. but they're there as a tenant. They're kind of an equal partner at the table with all sorts of other nonprofits, community groups, Mm -hmm. you know, so now it's used for like an event space, a wedding venue, there are art studios in the basement, there are nonprofit offices in what would have been Sunday school rooms back in the day. Um, and it really became, really kind of came back to life as a community resource. And so now the
1: building's being used it's, and yeah. it's, it's used often. It's not just yeah. sitting there and just yeah. used one day a week or, yeah, yeah. that's, yeah. that, Absolutely. that really, and that, and that's what the building was meant to do. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
2: So in many ways it is serving the kinds of purposes it was built to do in the first place. Right. 100, 150 years ago, congregations had a kind of prominence in the community where they could do that all under their own umbrella. And they, you know, people's lives revolved around the life of the church in a different way. That's just simply not true in many cases now. And so many of the same kind of services and activities happen there, but they're under an array of organizations that that all are kind of there to serve the community. Some are faith-based and some aren't, and right. they find ways to kind of work alongside yeah. each other.
1: Yeah, that that made me think of the even the parochial schools and those buildings sitting empty now. And yeah. there, there, there is space there that could be used. And I know that probably falls kind of outside of what you do because you do you focus just on the yeah, uh, although yeah. very closely aligned. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. But I, I'm thinking there. I know just in Lancaster, there are several buildings that are sitting empty that you know, could, could have some kind of community center support kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Well, yeah. And I think truly, you know, Lancaster, you know, I was saying this, this is going on in every community across the country. It is certainly happening in Lancaster. So I've lived here 10 years, been here longer. You know, if I think of just the 10 years I've been here, I have seen historic churches, uh, sold by their founding congregation mm-hmm. to another congregation. Yeah, I, I I've seen about that, that happen too. three yeah. or four times mm-hmm. just in the 10 years I've been yeah. here. I see churches that I know there are only a handful of people showing up on Sunday morning and, you know, someday really soon that church is going to be on the market. And, right. And we're all yeah. going to wonder, well, how are we going to deal with that huge kind of landmark building right. in our community? And we've seen others, you know, this is one of the interesting things, this certainly happens in other urban centers too. There have been at least two and maybe three just in Lancaster that have been converted to high-end residences.
1: Yes. Um, Yeah.
2: So so partners' vision is Mm -hmm. it it is best if these are restored as community assets really for the community. Mm -hmm. Um, But there are cases where we kind of walk alongside, you know, churches that end up being kind of abandoned. Um, You know, the the kind of saddest stories are when they are demolished. Um, Yeah. But it it certainly happens. And I think increasingly there is a very real kind of earnest reality that uh, we have to be strategic. We meaning everyone involved in right. this work about yeah. which places can be saved with integrity and, and which ones probably can't because right. there are just yeah. too many kind of influx. right Yeah. Now.
1: And there, there are. And, and if you, I went through the parochial school system in mm-hmm. Lancaster and if you look at the number of, Catholic churches that are in close proximity to each yeah. other and because they were built for different ethnicities or different congregations, yeah. different uh, nationalities, that's very hard to sustain. And those are hard conversations to have because yeah. you, if you don't have enough people attending to sustain it and to there, then there, you get to that point where are you going to, um, you, the building's worth preserving, but what what can, what can you do can it can it stay in this form or does it need to transform yeah. and i think you know if you go kind of through the criteria for a national landmark i'm sure most of them would would be on the registry yeah because but you know then you have to kind of think you know was this you know tied to i know you you have christ church is one of the ones that you found that you funded yeah um, that is definitely a national you know yeah. tied to our national history but then you have the other ones that are still very important because they're tied to people's history, but maybe they're, they're not as noteworthy and they didn't have yeah. the famous people. Yeah. And, and that is a balance. And I think that would be really hard because the buildings are all, mostly all beautiful. And, and, you know, even, even in disrepair are beautiful. There's, a, I don't know if you're familiar um there's a book that's like abandoned places, um, and he. The, I, I can't think of the the author's name, but he went into these places. And he, there's one church in Philadelphia that he went to every day as it was being demolished. And uh-huh. yeah, it's just it's it, the, even those pictures are beautiful as you know uh-huh. half yeah. the building's gone. <laughs> yeah. yeah,
2: yeah. The photography can be beautiful, but the place right is heartbreaking. Yeah, it yeah. is. Like, it is. Yeah
1: and i just so i don't envy the position you're in you we usually get involved when people are ready to save something we don't we don't have to make those hard decisions yes
2: well and we don't really either i mean although with with the grant making program yeah we're we're often in the same boat of where we come alongside whenever we can yeah um although with the grant making program we do face these hard choices so with the national fund you know, this was created to speak into all the things we're describing, and, and it actually get some financial resources to these congregations. But even still, we're funding like twelve across the country right. each year. Um, yeah. That that really. Now, how many
1: how many applications do you
2: get? Um, so we're in our second year of the program. The first year was kind of an invitation only round. Mm-hmm. So. We are. We have about two weeks to go until our due date for the, okay. for the first, first kind of fully open application right. round, where we marketed this across the country. Um, so it's still a little bit yet to be seen, but it's looking like we will have something like a hundred plus uh, applications and for about twelve elite, students. Yeah. That's those
1: are hard choices. and, those, those,
2: yeah. and behind those hundred, there, you know, there's probably another thousand that would technically qualify right. for our program. But do they rise to the top is the most important, right? So we, I should tell a couple stories though. You mentioned oh, sure, Christchurch, and it, it reminds me of kind of the range of places we do find because you're exactly right. So we we have to be strategic with the one kind of we look at a couple factors. We're we're going for a building that's really significant, maybe in a couple different ways. Mm-hmm. It might be architecturally significant. The history of the congregation right. might be significant. Uh, So in the case of Christ Church in Philadelphia, it kind of hits both of those at about the top. However you want to rank that, they're at the top of both of those. Um, You know, Ben Franklin is buried in their burial ground. Um, The building is this amazing amazing kind of colonial era building. But the other piece that's really important to us, and this goes back to the kind of research we were talking about earlier, and I think really the whole preservation community is moving this way too, where the, the kind of line... You know, I've even heard um, Stephanie Meeks, the director of the National Trust for Historic Preservation, uh, kind of uses this line frequently that, you know, this is this is not just kind of about bricks and mortar and preserving these places right. it, kind of completely outside of their context. It's yeah. about taking spare care of spaces that still matter to yeah. their
1: community. And I, and I think too, like, I, at least in the preservation community in Lancaster and the organizations, there's like an organization just devoted to saving like places. And then one that's devoted to more of the people's stories. And I think to marry those two yeah. would really make more people realize that preservation is about all of our history. It's, yeah. it's collective. Yeah.
2: So, so Christchurch is a great example because we, if for for all their noteworthiness, architecturally and historically, there are other churches that rise to that level right. in the country. But one of the real standout features of Christchurch is they have really worked hard over the last couple decades to be completely relevant as a community resource for Philadelphia. Oh, uh, I wasn't aware one of, the, of that. that yeah. Right. Oh, yeah. it's a fantastic story. One of the ways they have done that is opened their, uh, it's called Neighborhood House, but it would be kind of the parish house that mm-hmm. was adjacent to the church building. They, they, which is historic in its own right, but it's like 125 years old or something right. like that. They have fully restored and updated that facility to be used as a multi-purpose venue, mostly as a theater venue. Oh, so that's interesting. Just, uh, these numbers aren't exact, mm-hmm. but off, because it's off the top of my head, but it's something on something on the order of like 150 plus arts organizations have used oh. their facility as a venue in the last year. Oh, that's great. Right. So that's <laughs> so like it's like every almost other day. Every, yeah. Yeah, almost every day there's yeah. a theater group in their building, either rehearsing or performing. Yeah. So that's amazing. That this, is This 300 plus year old congregation that has this weight of history uh, that on its own, it would be reasons to, put just, lots of money right, into saving it. Right. What really puts it over the top is the way they have worked. And as a former pastor, this is what matters to me more than mm-hmm. just kind of I was a gonna, place that yeah, mattered in right. history. Yeah,
1: and I was going to ask you about that. Do you feel like that brings you a different perspective? Into yeah, that?
2: totally. Yeah. Um, so we have other staff who come from a much more kind of traditional preservation mm-hmm. background. Um, and I really respect and learn, a, a, as a newcomer to this work, I learn a lot from what they teach me. Right. Um, but that being said, uh, my perspective is often, you know, driven by what's the impact of these congregations now? How yeah. and and not just in kind of traditional social service ways, but are they finding innovative, dynamic ways to engage with their
1: community? Yeah, I, I think that's um, that that is an interesting perspective, and and I think that in this type of work in preservation and and any, having the different perspectives and helps everybody see. You know that it's not. Yeah, it's not just a static place in history. It's an evolution, and and it's how and and the impact now is just as important. We we can balance both and and honor both.
2: Yeah. So that that's a real important piece for our program. We're we're constantly looking for kind of both of those pieces. And we end up saying no to some projects who don't understand why we said no to them because they're like, But don't you understand how important this building is? Right. Yes. And you're not doing anything with it right now. Yeah. Um, So it's really important to us um, that it's continuing to serve um, its community. That being said, you know, there are also these other situations, Christchurch that I was just describing. You know, they're a great example of they have lots of resources and there's always a need for more. So we're right. stepping in to help with more. But really, like, they have access to a lot of resources. We work with some others that are in really tenuous situations. So I think of a really wonderful little African Methodist Episcopal Zion congregation in North Carolina oh, that yeah. we're funding this year. Um, and they they got on our radar because they've been out of their building for 10 years because it suffered hurricane damage, oh, um, and they got yeah. on our radar because they were listed as a as a, one of the most endangered places by uh, the National Trust okay. a yeah. few years ago. So the National Trust kind of brought them to the table. They have capital needs beyond what they can muster themselves, even though Mm -hmm. they have continued to thrive. They've been meeting kind of off location for 10 plus years.
1: And they're still. Yeah. um, They
2: continue to thrive, continue to serve their community in lots of important ways. Um, You know, this is a, this was a church built by kind of prominent African-American freedmen, you know, soon after the civil war, the congregation was formed in the kind of, uh, in the, Reconstruction era right. after the Civil War, the church was built in like the 1890s by one of the most prominent African-American families in that community yeah. in North Carolina. So like it's, these it's are a lot
1: of history, too. There's a lot of yeah.
2: history there. And it's a more kind of simple-looking kind of country, right. North Carolina church, but what an important place historically. Mm-hmm. and
1: And... Yeah. From a historical perspective, because I'm sure at that time, then it was the education center and the, you know, the community center and everything else that that reconstruction era required.
2: Exactly. It's a classic kind of reconstruction era story. You know, white folks from the North came down and started a school next door. And eventually, you know, the same African-American builder built the school next door. So all these, yeah, I mean that, and what an amazing legacy too. Of I mean, you know a community that probably was severely kind of lacking in resources right. and had kind of every obstacle in the way and still and that built was, a beautiful little yeah, church yeah and that was
1: probably their safe place too <clears throat> yeah within the community that's that's really i mean in those you know it's not as prominent but it's definitely a, an important piece of our yeah. history
2: yeah and um, the goal is you know in that case The goal is to get them back in that building so that they can kind of reestablish that sense of home.
1: How do you work with the the congregations then? Do you do like a matching funds or how how does that process work?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, Our grant making program has a couple different pieces to it. So one, and this is kind of the hook for everyone, is the big capital grant. Of Mm -hmm. course, they would all love to get $250,000 from us. and anyone who's awarded in the program, you know, the goal is sincerely to get them that kind of money. But along the way, we do a lot of capacity building mm-hmm. and kind of assistance with the project. So we have small planning grants okay. that help pay for things like architectural fees, the and project whatever. development, yeah, yeah, project development, all those things that add up uh, for any project along the way. And those are, those are, those are modest sized planning right. grants, but it's, it's uh, the goal is to at least have enough in the planning grants to kind of encourage them to do all that good professional project right. work, right? And then we also uh, each congregation is expected to participate in a group training. We do a couple different levels of that, but the kind of basic one is simply like, how do you run a good capital campaign as a church? Oh yeah. You know, many of these congregations have not done a capital campaign in a generation, or maybe ever, right? and you know that north carolina church is a you know they're they're doing great they're a hard working church but you know they don't have a big budget and they're looking at like a million dollars to be able to get back in the building
1: right and you know? that and that's a, for a, for a smaller congregation that's <laughs> that's very daunting
2: that's a I, big yeah, deal yeah. so just getting them some basic of tools for how do you set up a, yeah. an effective campaign and all the while encouraging them to get professional help with that. Too. Right.
1: And like, I was thinking too, that's, that was what I was saying <clears throat> could they even, you know, plan stages so that yeah. they're, you know, they're protecting the building and that's, that's how we approach it. So you stop all the water and elements from getting in, and then yeah. you're, you're stabilized and yeah. then you can kind of move forward yeah. from and that. Then go, and then that kind of gives people encouragement too, that they're, They're actually making progress.
2: Yeah, Yeah, exactly. You know, some projects are kind of a once and done thing and some are kind of phased. Um, And then we also wrap in some kind of customized consulting services um, that, again, are often either in the realm of capacity building or using a kind of set of skills Mm -hmm. and expertise that our staff have to help them get a step down the road with something related to kind of their building and their mission. That can be really wide-ranging. Our staff bring a real wide variety of experiences, right. um, everything from very traditional kind of preservation considerations to capital campaign expertise to expertise in kind of training up the congregation on if you want to share your space more for community life, how do you do that? How right. do you kind of make that part of who you are? Um, so we'll step in and offer a few days of, of kind of free consulting work, yeah. as part. Of it.
1: That's, that, that's very, I, that, I think that's probably very important too. And you, do you do that for the grant recipients or? Yeah. Okay. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So kind of the, the idea is, you know, we were talking earlier about kind of 12 slots mm-hmm. out of those hundred plus right. or whatever. So they apply for the program and we award a cohort into the program this year. It'll probably be 12. Yeah. Um, and then each of those twelve get everything I just described. Okay. That's very, very
1: yeah. cool. that's that's very interesting. Did you have anything else that you wanted to share? Or I, I feel like we've covered a lot, of, yeah. a lot of things.
2: Great question. I don't think so. I okay. think that's an okay place. I yeah. mean we yeah. could, we could I, yeah. follow up. No, lots yeah, of I think, yeah, I think yeah, like I think I
1: think we've we've covered what you do and why you do it and, and why it's so important to not just the congregation but to the greater community. How can can our audience get a hold of you?
2: Oh, great question. Partners for Sacred Places is the organization I work for and we have a website which is sacredplaces.org so you can visit that website and learn about the array of things we do from training and consulting to grant making. The program that I direct is the National Fund and it has its own kind of standalone website. Uh, I should say that program is in partnership with the National Trust for Historic Preservation, which is the largest right. preservation national preservation organization. Uh, the website for the National Fund is fundforSacredPlaces.org. My phone number is on the partner's website. My email is on both websites. So yeah, I'm always glad to talk to people more about this.
1: Very program. good. Yes. Thank you. Thank you for for coming in and and speaking with me. Yeah. I
0: enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to the Historic Restorations podcast. The resources discussed during this episode are on our website at historic-restorations.com forward slash podcast. If you received value from this episode and know someone else that would get value from it as well, please share it with them. Join us next week for another episode of the Historic Restorations podcast. For more information on restoring your historic home, visit us at historic-restorations.com.